Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here, one of your co-hosts. I hope you're doing well. I actually just got back from a quick weekend in Palm Springs, California. Wow, that place is pretty cool. I wish I had more time to hang out. We were there for a family wedding. But alas, we are back and here we are recording our intro for another amazing guest. In our episode this week, we sit down and connect with Dr. Olka Joshi Hansen, who is the author of the book titled The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. Okay, let me just take one moment and say that this book is so good. I have so many notes written in it. Dog tag? Is that what they call it when you kind of bend the corner of the pages? I think so. Anyway, I've done that all over the book. Steve jokes towards the end of this episode that we got done reading this book and we're both like, well, we no longer need to write anything. There's just so many things I appreciate and it was such an honor to have her join us. We have such a interesting conversation. It was a reminder for me of how important it is to understand the history of education and how we got here in order to move forward, that we have to understand that process. I also really enjoy that we, how do I want to say this? That essentially I know I focus a lot on the brain and I love the brain, but it was just a good connection of like, yes, we have to understand how the brain learns, but we can't forget the body also learns and those body-based, social-based components. And so that's, it's just as important to remember that. And then lastly, at the very end of the episode, hopefully, hopefully you'll find this funny because I did. I... To say that I love being prescriptive and intentional would be an understatement. I think it's vitally important. And not that it's not important. You have to have some strategy and intention to shift this system, but there also has to be room for flexibility. And so that was one of my biggest takeaways from this episode is just that reminder because it's hard. It is hard. It is draining. Sometimes it feels like we're not making progress. So while we need to be intentional with what we're doing to shift, we also can can create that space to be flexible and see what happens. I hope you all enjoy this episode. We had a lot of fun making it. The book is titled The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. Go buy it right now. It's so good. All right, y'all sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Dr. Olka Joshi Hansen. All right. Well, Olka, welcome to Education Suspended. We're so excited to have you here. I learned about your great work uh, through my friend Caitlin almost a year ago because Caitlin was one of our first guests. And she told us about this amazing book that we had to get our hands on. So I bought it right away, sent a copy to Grainer over there. And we love this book. So we're so grateful for your time. Let's just start how we usually start. So if you would say hello to our listeners what you do, how you got there, and your story, and then we'll just jump in from there. Great. Well, I'm super excited to be here. Any friend of Caitlin um, is going to be a friend of mine. So I appreciate the invitation and really glad that folks are taking time to, to listen to this. So a little bit about me, and I always start with this. 
I'm what's what people call a third culture kid. I had never heard this term before, but it refers to somebody who was raised by parents who grew up in one culture. You yourself are raised in a second culture. And then at some point in your formative years between birth and 2025, 20, you live in at least one other culture um, in a in a deep way. And that definitely describes me probably go over oh. the number of three. But, you know, I I grew up in the in Tanzania, in Arusha, came back to the U.S. for school, and then ended up studying in France and Germany, Canada, the U.K., lived in Botswana and Tanzania. So my lens on the world is kind of interesting, right? Being a third culture kid, the advantage is that you can move across cultures and spaces easily because your identity was formed across lots of different spaces. So you're a little bit more fluid. The downside is you never quite belong anywhere because you don't have that experience of being rooted. And so the lens I bring to education in large part has to do with the fact that I lived in lots of different places and often see things in terms of patterns that are consistent across places and contexts. And I think it actually is very interesting that I was so drawn to the kinds of programs that I talk about in the, in the book, I call them human-centered approaches because they really center belonging and relationship. And so as somebody who didn't have that, I think it makes a ton of sense that I was really compelled by them. My own education, I grew up in New Jersey when I was in the US and it was it seemed pretty traditional except for two things. My own parents didn't go to college. My dad finished high school. My mother didn't, though she ended up training to be a nurse later. And so they weren't formally educated, but they they really talked about or made it obvious that learning happened everywhere and in lots of different ways. So my dad would always ask me, I'd come back from a trip or from doing something. And he'd say, well, what did you learn? You know, write it down. And by the time I got to high school, he would sometimes you know, really embarrass me by going in and saying, well, why can't you get credit for that? Like, you should be able to get credit for the fact that you lived in Germany or that you were in Russia for a summer or whatever. And so, yeah, I really internalized that idea that learning happens everywhere and not just inside of a classroom. And I also had educators who were on the tail end of that generation of teachers who went into the profession when there weren't a lot of options for women and people of color. And so they had been in the profession, in the classroom for 35, 40 years. And and I went to college and trained to be a teacher not far from where I grew up. And so while I was training, I went back and I shadowed every one of my teachers that was still there that I'd had from kindergarten through 12th grade. And some of them, it was just a week. Some of them, I went and stayed with them for two or three weeks. And they just, they'd been in the classroom for so long that it felt like they had internalized this idea that the human beings in front of them were all unique and that they had to kind of allow for that uniqueness to unfold. And so I really took that in for myself. And that's what I thought teaching was going to be. But when I went to Newark, New Jersey to teach after I graduated in 1998, Newark was doing No Child Left Behind before No Child Left Behind was a thing, right? So they were talking about equity and closing test score gaps. And I went in thinking, we're going to do physics experiments and we're going to like do salsa dancing and we're going to do all sorts of projects. And that wasn't what I was doing, right? I had to do weekly literacy tests and math tests. And we had the computer-based programs and everyone had data walls and they're talking about equity. And at least what I felt was that I had these human beings in front of me and I wasn't able to be with them in the ways that I felt like I should be based on my own experience of my teachers and education. And so I left. 
worked for a foundation for, um, for a couple of years. And what was interesting was that we funded at the foundation lots of different kinds of programs. So the first college preparatory charter schools, but then also Montessori schools and Waldorf schools. And I was really taken by the difference between those different ways of doing education. And my career since you know the last 20 years has really been about exploring that question. What makes them different? Why do we not have that kind of diversity of approaches in the public sector? And you know what would it look like to have a different kind of system? It's interesting that you brought up that sense of belonging. And first off, thank you for sharing your story. That was awesome. I know that Steve and I, we both want to jump into the history. How did we, how did we get here? And Grainer, you know, we'd love for you to share your experience because you were in the classroom, I think, when this shift started. And we've talked about it on other episodes as well. But I, I am interested in the sense of belonging and kind of what you do now. You talked about how important it is to feel that you fit, that you belong in the system. We know for so many of our students, they don't experience. For you, what is the influence now in that humanistic kind of holistic lens that you bring? How does that kind of drive you? I appreciate wanting to start with how we got here, right? Because I think we often jump into the factory model's broken. We need to fix the factory model. But because we're thinking about it only as the factory model, we start to kind of say, well, how do we make it look less like a factory? But my argument in the book is that to go forward, we need to go back because we need to understand the values and assumptions that underlie the factory model of education. And so I kind of take folks back about 500 years ago to Europe when there was a for lots of different reasons that we don't need to go into now, but there was a fundamental shift in the view of the world that scientists and human beings had. So we moved from what used to be pretty common across cultures, human beings understanding themselves to be part of a kind of a living whole connected mm -hmm. to other things, very embodied in their space and context to a view of the world more like a machine. And if you think of a machine and the thinkers of the time, the scientists of the time did, they said, well, we can understand it by taking it apart. So let's take it apart, understand the pieces out of context, and then put them back together again. And so you moved then into an understanding of the world and ourselves as people in this very kind of fragmented way, very decontextualized, um, right? You took things and just looked at them on their own. And it was very conceptual, right? Descartes, to me, is the quintessential person of the period when he said, I think, therefore I am not, I dance, therefore I am not, I love, therefore I am not, I feel, therefore, I, right. I think, therefore I am. And it took us into this very conceptual value of knowledge and learning. And that went on, it started in the sciences, but it went into the social sciences as people thought, well, we can apply these same principles to economic systems and political systems and educational systems. And so the factory model that we know, grab kids, take them out of their communities, put them in these boxes, have them go through a very efficient process of filling their brains up with knowledge. That factory model is actually grounded in these assumptions of decontextualized, fragmented, conceptualized notions of learning. And, and we can kind of go from there, but that to me is at the root of a lot of what we see in our current system. At that same time period, this is a history question that I, I'm very curious about. I would guess Eastern thought was different. Can you speak to that? Because, you know, the Western European thought that really kind of came across to America, the Eastern thought did not. So I want to go back with you 500 years to go to there. Yes, it was different, right? Even as the Europeans were sort of going into this dominant worldview that I think of as Cartesian Newtonian, the rest of the world was in a what I think of as a more holistic indigenous way of understanding the world. So a couple of things to note here. 
What's very interesting is these two worldviews, the Cartesian Newtonian and the holistic indigenous, they overlay very in a very interesting way over how our brains are structured. And I realize I might be getting into some tricky areas here because the brain is more your space. But a gentleman named Ian McGilchrist is somebody whose work I draw on a lot. And he talks about the right and the left hemispheres of the brain, not in the way that many of us have heard about it in popular literature, right? The right brain is about arts and the left brain is about math. That's oversimplified. Our whole brains are engaged in everything we do, whether it's writing or dancing or math or analysis. But he does say that the two hemispheres of the brain pay attention to the world in a different way. So the human brain has to do two things. You have to be aware of the whole because you need to understand what's there and could be happening, but you also need to be able to focus and really kind of make sense of all of this vast information to make it usable. So the right hemisphere is like the big end of a funnel and it's taking in embodied sensations and lots of kind of diverse information the left hemisphere is where all of that is filtered down and it's reduced, it's abstracted, it's conceptualized, it's made usable. And then hopefully when the brain is working properly, all of that goes back to the right hemisphere to be put into context, right? Some people might call that wisdom. And Ian's, um, Ian's assertion that he offers, which I agree with, is that the world over the last 500 years has become very left hemispheric, which is that Cartesian Newtonian way of being, which happens to be very sticky because we have these schema, these kind of easy shortcuts, and they become very easy for us to default to. And so to go back to the history question, right, the modern Western worldview was exported through colonization. And so it did go out and it did begin to dominate the rest of the world in ways that I think we are now seeing in, in real time, ways of engaging with each other, with power, with relationships that are destructive, frankly. And I, I, use, I don't like the term white supremacy culture. I think there's a lot there that makes it difficult for us to engage in conversations. I use modern Western supremacy culture to describe this overly Cartesian Newtonian way of being that I think harms all of us because it it kind of takes us away from our humanity in really foundational and important ways. Do you feel as though due to COVID, do you feel as though more people have a, a better understanding for how it's not working for everybody? I feel like marginalized groups could probably identify why it doesn't work. I think due to COVID, it, it feels to me as though more people are having a better understanding because everyone's kind of been in the same muck together. Are you seeing that? So the way I put it, is that different worldviews birth different systems. And so if we look at a lot of our economic systems, right? Unrestrained capitalism versus social capitalism, domination of nature versus a more sustainable way of living, health as medicine to prevent death versus health as wellness, right? These debates in lots of spheres of our lives, I think, can be overlaid over these two worldviews and the systems that they birth. And the question that I think a lot of us are grappling with in lots of different areas, to your point, is which values do we want to drive us? Which values do we want to drive the systems around us? And so, yes, I think with the with the slowing down, I think for many people, there's been more awareness of the ways in which systems and things aren't working for everyone. What I do want to push and what I try to do in the book is to contextualize that as this, this is about a view of the world and a view of ourselves as people. It's not just political debates on the right or the left or Democratic or Republican. It is much more foundational and much more accessible to all of us across ideologies as a, a question of what do we want for ourselves and our children? Oh, man, I'm just connecting on every level here 
I would like to continue to ask you then, when did this transformation into a more business model, this more Newtonian back system that we have, I think a lot of our educators, and I live that, but I, I think they would be fascinated to kind of know some of the main maiden steps that you outlined in the book, because I think it's important to know where they are now and how it got here versus when I started teaching in 1979, I will honestly say I had a, still had a teacher's soul. I still got to be me. I was not pigeonholed into doing things just any certain way. In fact, I think my principals even got at least a kick out of creativity and were kind of proud of that. That actually never changed in my teaching, but it did change in the system. As I said, the factory model was birthed at a very particular period in Europe about 250 years ago, right? So when for lots of different reasons, there were a lot of political and religious and economic actors that said, huh, we really want to kind of train the masses, train the masses of children to become economic, political, social units that fit our agenda. So this factory model was the most efficient way to do that. Educate kids, not too much, definitely educate them to kind of become the cogs, right, that we need them to be. And that that has become the dominant mode of education throughout the world. Um, it was exported. And so then to bring it forward to the U.S., that was always kind of our approach to education, except to where we started. And I think to what you said, Steve, right? We had human beings who were there. We had human being adults who were engaging with the young people in front of them. So even though there was, you know, curriculum and there was, um, there were sort of ways in which you had to do education with one teacher, classroom, curriculum, all of that, you did have this room, I think, for the heart of a teacher to kind of create that space and that relationship. But then around the early 80s with the publication of A Nation at Risk, all of a sudden we began to have a different conversation, right? We're falling behind. It is about competition. We've got to almost put on steroids this idea of having our kids be the best, the brightest, the most efficient to be able to compete with in that at that time, the USSR inside the Cold War. And so that kicked off this and I talk about it in the book is this very left hemispheric way of solving a problem. You look at a system, you kind of strip it down. You're like, well, what's efficient? What's not? And let's fix the things that aren't efficient. So it kicked off this standard based reform of saying, if we can just articulate the high standards, if we can efficiently enact those, if we can have consequences and accountability for people who aren't doing well, because obviously that must be what's wrong, we can move the system forward. And so really, if I had to boil it down and I, you know, I don't want to simplify something that is very complex, but it was the standard-based move, standards-based movement and the accountability structures that were built around those that kind of propelled us towards this very um, kind of bureaucratic, very top-down, very dehumanized way of thinking about education. Now, what I do want to say, right, is that the reason people wanted to do this, at least on some level, was also the recognition that some kids were being served well and other kids were not being served well, and that some kids weren't being served well because there were well-meaning adults that nevertheless kind of said, oh, well, you're a boy. So, you know, you, maybe you can't do this or you're a girl. And so you're not, you know, math and science, not so much, or you're black or you're poor, or you have a learning difference. And so there were a lot of kids who were not being well-served. And what I do think the standards and accountability movement showed us very much more clearly than we'd ever seen it is the ways in which different groups of kids were not being served well. However, I don't think 
that the improvements happened in the ways that we wanted them to. And arguably, to your point, we've made it more corporate. We've made it more bureaucratic. We've stripped out the humanity, whether it's the arts and music or kind of projects or recess or all the things, right, that we know are important. And that was inadvertent which is a very left hemispheric thing. That is what happens when you allow the left hemispheric way of being to dominate without the right hemispheric kind of wisdom. In your book, and you just said it there, part of my reflection afterwards was what what has been the impact at a humanistic level on us for putting our students through this cog-based, factory-based model. And there's a there's a quote in your book, and I wanted to make sure I read it because I think there are so many quotes that I have highlighted, but this one I think connects to that and will essentially connect to the question that I will ask you. You write, the narratives we teach our children about what it means to be smart and successful, what they should be learning and achieving in school, and why they should do so, and what options they have to build fulfilling lives are based on how we understand well-being and fulfillment. These messages, implicit or explicit, stay with them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, what's coming up for me is that in our last episode, we actually did something pretty cool and we interviewed students. Mm-hmm. And one theme that came up when Steve and I were talking with them was that at some point in their history as a student, and they're all high school students now, they were given the message that they're not smart, which is why I love your book, which is, you know, the focus on the future of smart. What does it mean? And all of them in at some point in elementary school, walked away even before entering halfway through their career as a student, believing that they were not smart. Yeah. And what it meant to be smart. So I'm wondering if you can go into that. What are you seeing as the one of the, not one of, but what are some of the biggest impacts on students by the model that we have inherited? Well, you know, the title of the book was inspired by one of my sons where it was exactly that moment. It was early elementary school and he came home and over the breakfast table, something he said, I'm not smart. And I was like, what? Right. But he, our schools are kind of messages about standards and what it means to be on grade level and what it means to be proficient. They lay out this very narrow idea and picture of what it is to be smart, capable, competent. And we've rigged it so that no one can ever meet every single bar, right? No one can be at the 99th percentile of anything. And so there will always be somebody who's at the 15th percentile. That's the weird part about our Mm -hmm. system. So we have narrow definitions. And then we've also said, everybody can't succeed. And therefore, yes, everyone walks away feeling that they are not capable. They don't measure up. And that's kind of what school does, right? It tells you all the ways in which you're not good enough your entire 12 years. And I think parents feel that. I think And for a really long time, I think it felt like, oh gosh, well, maybe the safest thing, because it kind of worked for me, even though I had a bad feeling about myself and I left school and I breathed a sigh of relief because now I could finally find my place in the world. You know, it it was probably the, the benefits outweighed the harms. And I think that's wrong generally, but I also understand why that feels as a parent, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I just hedge my bets and do it. I think we've gotten to the point with standards, with accountability, with the labeling of kids, right? That you come in and we have to give you a label of some sort that they carry with them and with what it is the world needs, right? I think I use the, I don't think in the book, but this idea of in biological systems, you want biodiversity because it helps an ecosystem to survive unexpected challenges, to have lots of different possibilities genetically. And I think neurodiversity, the idea that human beings are different, that our brains are different, that how we exist and see and think about the world is different, 
in a world where we have complex challenges that are always going to require teams of people to kind of come to them and solve them. And where frankly, you do want different ways of seeing problems so that you can find new solutions. I think we have finally hit a moment in human history where across the board, we can more generally agree that we need the diversity of human skills, talents, capabilities, perspectives to kind of do what we need to do in the world. And so an education system that operates off a very narrow definition of capability no longer serves us well. It may never have served us well, but even if we leave that aside, it doesn't serve us well moving forward. And so the way I think about it is as long as there have been factory model schools, there have been approaches to education that are more human-centered liberatory like Montessori and Steiner Waldorf and big picture learning and expeditionary learning, but they've always been on the fringes. They've always been countercultural. And they've always mostly been in the private sector where the people with the most access and privilege can send their kids. We are now at a point where if we really care about having all of the human capabilities and capacities that we need, we have got to shift to this more human-centered model. So what they produce and what the world needs are now converging in a way that I don't think they have done over the last 200 years. I love all that. You're making too many connections. Sorry, my brain is firing. First thing I'm thinking, I'm reading a book called Reinventing Organizations. I don't know if either of you have ever seen that book, but it's it's about creating an ecosystem as the the most human and spiritual way of, of doing school. So I, I, I'm really inspired by that, the old teal colored ecosystem in that book. The other thing though, that um, you really triggered in me as, as I was listening is, I wanted to speak to our teachers, like, what could this mean for them? Because we got people leaving education in droves. And Jessica and I are both watching the exodus of teachers. And I think it's because the teaching soul was stolen and then COVID just made it obvious. What can you say to teachers about the, the freedom of seeing school as an ecosystem rather than a business model? I love the fact that you brought up Lalu's book. So it's Frederick Lalu who's the author. And I also kind of read that book. And there's a reason I call the, the worldview, right? Holistic indigenous or holistic ecological. And it is because different kinds of systems are supported by different kinds of architecture, right? Different approaches to education are supported by different kinds of systems and different kinds of systems have different architecture. So a man-made system is made out of steel and rigid bars and very like, you know, strong, heavy, inflexible sorts of things. Living ecosystems also have structures, but they are much more grounded in the sort of individual components of a system being connected into the larger kind of being, right? The, the larger living entity and they're constantly changing. And so to get to this more human-centered model, it means we do need more ecologically grounded systems or things that are inspired by nature. And the beauty of nature is fractals are a really big part of it. So for folks who don't know fractals, right? Think of, think of a, a head of broccoli where the big broccoli, if you break off a piece, the smaller piece looks like the bigger piece. And if you take off even a smaller floret, like the smallest piece looks like the, the middle-sized and the bigger pieces. And what that means is you're trying to replicate at each level of the system, the sorts of things that we want the system as a whole to look like. What that means for individual teachers, I think it's hopeful in that you as an individual have the capacity inside your immediate sphere of influence, which is your classroom and your relationship with your students to kind of create the relationships, the work that is grounded first and foremost in relationships of knowing your students, of them knowing you, of there being a sense of mutuality and vulnerability, right, as the foundation for all the work that you do. And that then allows you to kind of say, all right, 
inside the constraints of the standards and the curriculum and the testing, all of which suck. I get it. Suck the soul and the energy that you have. And yet inside the constraints of that, there are ways to work with your colleagues and be inspired by your colleagues about the small shifts you can make. Maybe it's that you add a genius hour every week, which is simply a, you ask your kids, if I wasn't telling you what to do, what would you want to do? What would you want to learn about? And give them an hour just to kind of build a different set of muscles in relationship to their education. Or maybe you do a Socratic seminar where you kind of give over, gradually release the kind of ways in which they're going to engage with content and each other in new ways. They're still going to be learning lots of skills. You can still cover the content, but you can do it in a different way. So then you take that and you're doing that with your your students, your classroom, your practice. And inside of your school, ecological systems are dynamic. And so you're hopefully inspiring your colleagues to do something different. And I think when parents see that, when they see their kids engaged, when they hear their kids be like, oh, I came home and I'm going to tell you something because it was exciting instead of soul sucking, then parents are like, oh. I like that. I I like this experience. They then become your allies in sort of shifting the kind of school level ecosystem. And when we have enough of those school level ecosystems starting to shift, then I think all of a sudden you have much more power and leverage inside your district system to kind of have different conversations. So to your question, I think the business model, the industrial model is very much um, kind of driven by the by the people who have the power and the money and the people who kind of drive the business. I think a more ecological approach allows the power to then be distributed closer to the nodes that we care about, which are our students, and for for it to kind of drive up from our practice and the shifts that we're making in our ways of being to then sort of demand something different of the system. And I think just even though COVID has been disruptive and it's been exhausting and I'm going into schools and I'm talking with educators and it's a little bit heartbreaking because everyone is so tired and I feel like public education and educators are under assault right now. I do think that what COVID has done is already dismantled and disrupted systems that were always part of the reason that everyone said, well, we can't do anything differently. I mean, how can you not have kids go to school to learn? How can you not do testing every year? How can you not do college admissions with GPAs and AP tests, right? And it turns out over the last two years, a lot of those systems have already been disrupted. And so this is a moment, I think, for us as educators, for us as parents and community members to be like, no, no, we're not building back to what we had. Things have already been disrupted. So now is the time to have very different conversations about what do we want to be held accountable to? How should we be doing our work? How should we be sort of engaging students differently in their work? So it is a movement building opportunity, which I know can sound exhausting, but I also think it's kind of hopeful in that way. One of the things that Steve and I teach about at times is what are patterns of stress that we need to experience that develop tolerance that develop resilience. And you you hit that, right? You said there needs to be some element of control. So you can't control the whole system, but you can control your classroom. So I love that of like your sphere of influence is so powerful, will change lives. So that that's what the dots connected real quick of like, oh, that's that's essentially what we're saying is to build tolerance for where we're at right now. That's a really good place to start. The other piece that I love is yes, this focus on the the ecosystem, that lens and conceptualizing our environment in that perspective. You also highlight And I'm wondering if you can connect these two and how they work hand in hand. And I couldn't find the quote in the book, but you, you write essentially, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that we also can't change the system if we don't understand 
a neuro lens? How does the brain work? What's the science behind that? So can you connect those two, this neuro lens and why, why it's important and its connection to the ecosystem? So the conventional model of education was really grounded in a behaviorist kind of understanding, or if you want to be a little bit more sophisticated, is even sort of a, a more recently a processing, like a computer processing lens that somehow education is much more about either the inputs and sort of like forcing certain inputs in and, or if you just teach the brain to be more efficient in how it takes in information, that's okay. But that it has nothing to do with how we feel, whether we feel safe, whether we feel known, whether we feel like our identity is valued. And I think a more ecological way of understanding learning, and it's, you know, the schools that I talk about as human-centered, they are grounded first and foremost, not in college prep, not in academic readiness, but in relationship. And so they start with how are we building the relationship between the human beings in this classroom, in this school, in this system? So that becomes the foundation for everything else, which I think comports much more with what we know about learning, which is unless I come into a space and feel like I'm seen, feel like I'm safe, feel like I'm known, I'm not really going to be able to then go into the work of engaging with content, with knowledge, with questions, with curiosities, and to kind of go through that process of making connections, of finding meaning in it, of engaging in social ways of learning. I was, we were talking before we started recording about this book that I just finished called The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul, which really kind of pushes against this notion of brain-bound learning as though schools are just a place where you got to exercise this muscle that we call our brain. And she says, instead, you have to think about the ways in which our bodies think. It is not just our brains and often our bodies think before our brains think. So you have to kind of understand that. You have to understand how our environment, whether it's the beauty or not of our schools, whether it's access to nature, whether it's the ways that we extend our minds by you know, doing things with our hands are part of our learning and thinking and our social thinking, that we extend our minds through other people, that this conversation among the three of us is a very different way of learning than when you read my book, Jessica, or when I read you know, your work, or even when I listen to your podcast. So we need to think about all of that as part of learning. And I think the ecological model of, of learning allows for that and not only allows for it, you begin to design for it. So you begin to design the entire environment and the entire experience to kind of build those things in, as opposed to, you know, what I talk about in the book is you have your conventional, you have your whole child innovative reform, which is our second bucket. It's a really big bucket. It's, we see what doesn't work with the factory model and we bolt something on, but we sort of say, okay, now we'll do project-based learning for 45 minutes. And then the rest of the time, we're just going to do worksheets or, you know, kind of sit and learn as opposed to, we design the whole way that we do learning to weave in these different threads of what we know about the brain, the body, our emotions, and how that impacts you know, the whole learning experience. Greener, can I steal it for another question or do you want to go? No, you steal it. You're the boss of me. You know that. I'm not even going to respond to that. Um, <laughs> no, this is not a top-down podcast. This is an, e <laughs> this is an say, ecosystem. This is an emergent ecological podcast. That's right. <laughs> exactly. There's just so many dots connecting and I knew this was going to happen. You, you, you talked about design and you have themes consistently that come up about designing in an intentional fashion. And I'm obsessed with being intentional because I feel, I feel too often, 
we just keep going. Like our heads are down. We're just day after day, not thinking about it from an intentional perspective. So maybe I don't even have a question. Maybe it's just like that really came up for me. Yeah, you can design, but you have to be intentional and prescriptive in what you're designing. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you do. And what I'll caution. So we're going to go back to this right, left hemispheric way of being, right? There is a way of intentionality that is what happened with the standards-based movement, which is we are going to be top-down in our theory of change. We're going to be very prescriptive. We're going to be very rigid in how we think think things are going to happen. That's a very left hemispheric way of being intentional. There's a different way of being intentional, which is we understand that we are trying to create an experience, a feeling, and a collective way of doing that, which means that it's going to emerge and it's going to be messy. And it's going to sometimes feel like it's quote unquote failing, but it's not. And there's a set of muscles, I think, when I think about the left hemispheric versus right hemispheric way of being, I think there are different muscles we have to develop. And all of us have been steeped in this Cartesian Newtonian command control, be very rigid in how we think about change and intentionality. And so we have to develop these muscles that are kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to plan. And educators, I think, have this muscle, right? Which is you plan a lesson. And then you go and you have 25 human bodies and doesn't always go the way it's supposed to go. And you kind of go with the flow and you let it emerge. So I just, I want to caution that, which is the part of why I wrote the book was let's be intentional in terms of at least understanding how we got here, at least understanding the kind of pitfalls that kind of exist for us naturally so that we can kind of design for that, but then also kind of hold it loosely. And I, you know, a lot of like spiritual, a lot of like wellness kind of programs. If you do yoga, if you do mindfulness, if you do whatever, right? It is this be intentional, but also let it go, you know, design it, but don't hold too tight. Um, And so it's that set of muscles that I think we need to lean into as we're trying to kind of shift in this way and to be gentle with ourselves, right? This is hard stuff. And we're in a stew, a cultural stew that pushes us in the other direction all the time. I needed that reminder. Those muscles are non-existent. You've got them. You've got them. You got them. You just got to work it. And, you know, and you've got to do it in community. We can't do this stuff alone. Yeah. We have to find the other people who are trying to do this that can hold us up, lift us up. And in the at the end of the book, I uh or at the end of each chapter in the book, I try to put some exercises that are like, okay, here's a way to kind of build these muscles. And I keep coming back in it too. You have to do this with other people. It's a highly individualistic Cartesian Newtonian thing that makes it be like, I can just do this all by myself. No, we can't. We have to do this new stuff together. And it's going to be messy. That's what, that's what I do appreciate that you said about intentionality, shifting the system is going to be messy and it's going to push the comfort zone because we do. And by we, I, in particular, I love a, well, the step by step by step that doesn't necessarily exist. And we have to be okay with that. So I needed that reminder. That was great. I'm, I'm stuck on muscles because you know, muscles in order for movement to happen, it's kind of obvious one muscle has to relax while another contracts. And so I, I think what I'm saying to my fellow educators is it's okay to have some opposition. It might hold you in check. We don't want to turn around and have a, a more holistic view and then find ourselves wanting to pigeonhole people into a certain space too and understand, that, yeah, there's always going to be people different than us someone, and that we're going to have to relax when they're contracting and and vice versa. And that allows the body to move. So it, it doesn't like we all, again, we don't have to shift and then again, once again, all be the same. Actually, I love that. 
And I forgot to say one thing, and it's hard because we don't have the visual, but in the book, there's a diagram, which actually was designed by young people. So it was a high school business media company that helped me do the graphics for my book. And I used to do this Cartesian, Newtonian, holistic, indigenous as a table. And I didn't like it because it always implied this either or. And so one of the young women said, well, untable the table. I said, I have no idea what that means, but they came back to me with this diagram where it's kind of a circle inside of a circle. And the smaller circle is the Cartesian Newtonian. And the bigger circle is the holistic indigenous. And the message I wanted to give was that it's not that the Cartesian Newtonian is bad. There's a lot that comes out of that way of thinking or the left hemispheric work that is super important. The question is, can we situate it inside of this bigger picture and, and let the two have the right relationship to each other. And I think one of the things that people often jump to when they think about the human centered liberatory work, it is hard, complex work. It's hard to do it well. And because in a Cartesian Newtonian mindset, we go, it's either, or so either we let kids kind of have agency over their learning or we control them. And so, you know, the, the fear that a lot of people have is, well, they're going to be like chickens with their heads cut off because there's going to be no control and there's going to be no structure and there's going to be no whatever, or in a certain ideology, it's, oh, well, if you do that, then they're not going to learn the basics. They won't learn to read. They won't learn to write. They won't learn to think. And that's not it just because you do, or you have an approach that is more human centered doesn't mean that you don't need ways of being in your classroom and expectations and um, routines. It doesn't mean that there is never going to be direct instruction because one, there might be a student who needs it and that is how they learn and that's okay. And there may be things that are best taught or best kind of learned through direct instruction first and then have something else. So I think we need to be very careful as we're making this shift that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater as it were. And to really think about the beauty of the, of the holistic human-centered model is you get to have both, but we have to develop our muscles in the, we can have the structure inside of, or we can, yeah, we can have the structure inside of something that seems a little looser, but we don't jettison the structure altogether. And I think that's a, it's a bit of a, it's a hard one sometimes to get our, our heads around. And when we look at human-centered environments, oftentimes where they struggle is that they forget to put the structure. They forget to put the kind of structures, but, they, but they're there. They're just different. It makes my heart hurt for today's teachers. And, and I, I actually had written in my notes, either or, both and, because I thought we would get here. Most of our teachers now are growing up in an either or system. And we're living in an either or politicized country that's either this or it's that. And our teachers now are being ripped apart standing in the middle, not knowing what to do. Some, some in some states and some places even being told there are certain really wonderful books you can't teach because it might make some kids uncomfortable. I mean, I, I just want our educators to know both and is okay, but it's messier and it's harder, but it's both and thinking can really work. In fact, I think it's the only kind of thinking that will work in the end. And so I, I just really glad you brought up those conjunctions I used to teach to my eighth graders back in the day. So <laughs> that's right. That's, that's a right. good reminder. So as we start to wrap up in every chapter, I love it. You have the applying these ideas at the end of each chapter, which part of me that's like, okay, well, what do I do? Though I don't want to admit that's how I think. I do think that way. <laughs> it's good to think that way. It Otherwise, is. What's gonna, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> Let's end with that. Can we do something along the lines of, okay, applying these ideas, how do we support administrators? How do we support 
leaders? How do we support teachers? What are some things that they can do to, to try to shift the way slowly and, and something that feels tolerable from the either or mind mindset? Yeah. So in the last part of the book, I have a whole like getting from here to there, right? Because I didn't want to leave us all with a, oh, this is great, but what do we do about it? And I talk about three different stages, two different phases of work and three different bodies of work inside of those, right? I think there's transformational change, which is these conversations, right? Which What's the purpose of education? What do we want for our kids? What should we be holding ourselves accountable to? And that's a transformational type of change. The second is relational change. So shifting our relationship to the work of education, wherever we sit in our sphere of influence. So I'll draw from those two areas for this question, but I think it's incumbent on all of us to have these conversations. I think if you're an educator, having this conversation with your students might actually be a great place to start, which is we're coming back together again. What do you need? What do you want? What did you learn about yourself as a learner during COVID? What really like lit you up? I don't know if this came up with the students you talked to, but I was in another conversation with students last week and they said, we've been learning. I learned what it is to be well. I learned what it was to kind of be with my family and I learned a ton there. And they were talking about how it would influence how they thought about education. So having that conversation with your students, having that conversation with your kids, if you're a parent, what did you learn about yourself as a learner? And what does that mean for you as you go back into the, you know, into your formal education? And then there's a whole element of like shifting our relationship to the work. So I gave some examples for educators before, which is how could you make small switches, small changes in what you do in your classroom on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis? Just trying something, flexing those muscles, building those muscles for you and your students. And I give some suggestions there. I think if you're a parent, really starting to to kind of understand the ways in which the game and the system gives us messages about who our kids are supposed to be and what education is supposed to look like and shift it. So maybe not asking immediately about what was your grade on something, but like, what did you learn? Or if the grade wasn't great, asking like, you know, okay, fine. What did you learn about what you're going to do differently next time? Or what do you need to succeed? It's that, it's that kind of, or reminding your kids that they're learning all the time. What they do with their friends in their off time is learning, um, but to make that visible for them. If you're an administrator, again, having this conversation with your teachers, what do we want the ecosystem of this community to be? And you as as a leader, I think have a really big role with parents, which is helping reassure them at this moment that their kids are going to be okay. You're going to make sure they're okay with the educators and that you need them to be partners in this work. And then I think all of us need to be advocates at the system level. I think public education right now, it's been under attack for a while, Um, you know, Steve, to your point about it being a business, but I think there are very particular forces right now of people and interests that have a vested interest in shaking public confidence in public systems, including education. And so there's a lot of talk about, well, we should just give the money to parents to like unbundle it and do what they want and send their kids to where they want. And that is all I think leading towards a big push towards saying, yeah, public systems, not so much like devolve it all into the market and the private sector. So I think we all have a moment of sort of pushing back on that, which is no, no, you don't get to pull our system apart. We do get to have a conversation about what we want it to be and what that means for the next couple of years, voting for school board members, all that sort of thing. So I'll stop there. But I did try in the book in the last chapter to kind of dig a little bit into that, which is like, okay, so what can I do now? 
I have to thank Ulka for writing the book that now Jessica and I don't have to write. <laughs> Jessica's always wanted to write a book. And I picked this one up. I said, Jessica, yeah. this is it. Yeah. On the other hand, I want to compliment my, my dear friend and say, this podcast that she's created is becoming a, a book that yeah. comes in an audio form. Yep. And you are a chapter in it. And so we're really super thankful to have that as one of many. And and I think Jessica's vision to do this really is her book. And and your book is you just saved me a ton of work. So thank you. Yeah, I sent I sent him the book and he texted back after reading. He goes, well, there, there goes the book that we have to write. This is awesome. Oh. And, and I'm actually, I don't even know if we introduced the book. I don't even know if I said the title. So I'm going to say it now. <laughs> like halfway through this, I was like, did we say that? So the title is The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. This conversation is phenomenal. We get stuck in these positions where it's always awkward and where we don't want to end because I literally, I could ask you so many more questions. <laughs> Thank you so much, A, for writing this book, but for what you do, for leading the change. It's been an honor to have you connect with us. You're going to start a podcast, right? I am. So it'll be launching, as you know, because you you do this, it takes mm -hmm. a while. So in the yeah. next couple of months, and it is called The Future of Smart. People can get to it. My website is olka.com. It'll be on the Grantmakers for Education website, which is edfunders.org. And I, I do want to say for folks who read the book, please reach out. Um, I love doing like book talks or uh, just kind of hearing how people are using it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.